Recovery Elevator, episode 341. Um, over a little over a year, but at that time, I had no memory of any kind of plan to stay sober. I had no community in place, and I really white knuckled it for a little over a year. And I couldn't tell you when or why, but I just began drinking again. Life is always working in your favor. You can't heal in the same environment you became sick. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Britt. She's 45 years old from California and took her last drink on November 13th, 2018. You guys, registration opens this Wednesday, September 1st for our AF Sober Travel Trip to Costa Rica. We're there for eight nights, nine days from January 15th to the 23rd. We'll check out La Fortuna. This is where the volcano Arenal is located. Then head to the cloud forest of Monteverde. Then we finish the trip at the beach where we'll visit the Manuel Antonio Nature Reserve. We've got recovery workshops built into this trip that will propel you forward on your AF journey. On this trip, we have two main goals, having fun and connection. When those two things happen, I found that everything else falls into place. We've got 34 spots, and I anticipate this trip selling out in a couple weeks, so don't wait too long to book. Go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash Costa Rica. The link is in the show notes. Thank you, Hillary. Okay, let's get started. A Navajo Indian chief once said that instructions on how to solve any human problem can be found in nature. The issue we're trying to address on this podcast is departing from alcohol, quitting drinking, putting the beast back in the cage, being our authentic self, and creating a life where alcohol is no longer needed. Okay, we've got a problem, something that needs to be addressed, and for us, that's alcohol. So let's take a look at nature, more specifically buffalo, and see what we find. First off, I think 95% of us have been incorrectly calling bison buffalo. Buffalo are water buffalo from Africa, and bison are what roamed the Great Plains of the Americas in vast numbers before the Europeans arrived. An estimated 30 to 60 million roamed before there were about 325 left in 1884. The good news is their numbers are increasing, and there are about 500,000 of them now. So when a lone buffalo, shit, I mean bison, is out grazing, and a storm comes, it will always run away from the storm system, usually in the opposite direction. When I use the word storm, for the bison, that means thunderstorm, snowstorm, tornado, a weather pattern of sorts. With humans, I'm referring to cravings, the urge to drink, or a tough life challenge. Again, when a bison is solo or alone and a storm comes, it says, nope, no way, I'm out of here. A similar thing happened to me in the summer of 2014, when I was alone, meaning no one else around me knew of my decision to quit drinking, and a storm came, I'd head right back into my room, usually under my duvet, and wait out the storm, and this normally happened with a box of wine, or two. But, when a group of bison are grazing and a storm comes, here's what they do. They come together as a pack, shoulder to shoulder, they then orient themselves directly toward the storm, And then they begin walking towards it, through it, in it. They walk directly through it in the open. The bison intuitively know, or maybe this is a learned behavior, that A, they have a better chance of survival if they stick together, and B, the quickest way is through. 
Now, a couple of points I want to draw from this analogy. We are in nature. We aren't much different than dogs, cats, bison, or canaries, as we all have the same basic physiological and psychological needs. Sure, a bison doesn't have to file a tax extension, but of course they face challenges. And they've learned survivorship depends on numbers and facing the storm, walking right into it voluntarily. So here's the main takeaway. You can't do this alone. And it's recommended. No, that's not the right word. Let's try suggested. Nope. Encouraged. Nope. Vital. Yeah, that'll work. It's vital that you work alongside others with the task of quitting drinking. This is what people are doing across the globe in AA, Smart Recovery, our own private community cafe RE, and the list goes on. Eventually, you'll have to face the storm. Listeners, I wish there was a softer way to say that, but the sooner you face it, the less intense the storm will be. Another way to say that is, you have the best chances of quitting drinking today. This, alcoholism, is a progressive thinking disease that warps perceptions and is coupled with neurosis. And again, all of that can be reversed with time and abstinence from alcohol. The oncoming storm you're facing today may consist of gale force winds, thunderous clouds, and hail. However, if you postpone facing the storm for another decade or so, the next storm will contain all that and maybe a toxic ex-husband, organ failure, and the recognition that you forgot to file a tax extension. Facing the storm alone is like facing blaze, nitro, ice, lace, and well, storm from the American Gladiator show in the early 90s. You're going to take a tennis ball to the face and probably get tossed into a pit of doom. Well, foam, but you get the point. If I can summarize doing this journey alone in one word, that would be shitty. Facing the storm together can be and is a lot of fun. There's a deep camaraderie to it. There's companionship. Working together helps cue the release of serotonin and oxytocin. And that feels good. As I mentioned earlier, on today's podcast, we've got Brit. And before I turn it over to Odette and Brit, I want to share a story. I've met Brit in person, and we've attended probably four or five of the same RE events or independent cafe RE meetups together. She came on our Asia Adventure trip in January 2020, and I've really enjoyed getting to know her. In June 2020, we had a Cafe RE independent meetup camping trip near South Park, Colorado. Yes, that is the place the cartoon is named after. It's such a beautiful area. On the second day of the meetup, we were organizing a lake trip, and there was a caravan of cars. Britt, driving some sort of Jeep, was in the front of the line. Once we all started driving, I noticed Britt going, well, quite fast. In fact, as I was keeping up with her, I noticed the trail of cars behind me was no longer behind me, and there's no cell phone service where we were at. So I speed up and motion Britt to pull over. I pull up beside her and say, uh, hey Britt, you mind slowing down a bit? We've got several cars following us to the lake. She looks at me and then at the line of cars that are way off in the distance and says, Paul, I didn't quit drinking to rent a Jeep in the Rocky Mountains to only go 10 miles per hour on a dirt road. She then rolled up her window and sped off throwing rocks, dirt, and dust all over my car. I'm kidding on that last part. <laughs> she didn't peel out right in front of me, but I remember saying to myself on her response, damn, I love that answer. And it wasn't like she was ditching everyone. We all had a general idea of where the lake was, and I was also in front of the caravan. We were all going to make it to the destination, and we did, 
But Britt got there how she wanted to get there, and she was right. Britt didn't quit drinking to not have an adventure in a rental Jeep in the high peaks of the Rockies. She was, in that moment, living a life where alcohol was no longer needed. Britt was doing the thing, four-wheeling in the Rockies, that she had always wanted to do, but wasn't possible with alcohol in her life. One more thing I love about Britt, and I'm hopeful she mentions this in her interview, is how she burned the ships at her two-year AF mark. She hired a photographer, put on a green dress, and showed the world how amazing a life without alcohol can be. She then posted these photos on social media, Instagram. So I think a more accurate way to say this was she showed the world how invigorating it can be to claim your life virtue back. And as I mentioned in 339, addictions force us to be us, to get to know ourselves again. We recognize that everyone else is taken and that being someone else takes way too much energy. It's not fun. And sometimes we wear clothes that we don't even like or fit. Brit has stepped into Brit, and watching this has been an absolute gift. Thank you, Brit. And before we get to the interview segment of today's episode, let's hear from Exact Nature. Founded by a father and a son in addiction recovery, Exact Nature's all-natural CBD products are specially formulated to help you face the challenges of recovery. Whether this is addictive cravings, depression, anxiety, or lack of sleep, Learn more about what Exact Nature can do for you and how their products can help you. As a Recovery Elevator listener, use the code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order at checkout. That's RE20 at exactnature.com. Thank you so much, Paul, for that wonderful intro. And Britt, I'm so happy to be welcoming you to the show. This is Recovery Elevator. I can't believe we hadn't done an interview with you. How are you, Britt? I'm doing great, Odette. Thanks for having me. Listeners, I met Britt through Cafe RE, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to that part of her journey. But I, for the longest time, thought that Britt had already been interviewed for the show. And when I found out she hadn't, I sent her my calendar and said, we need to get you on the show stats. So I'm really happy that you said yes. How are you feeling? I'm good. I'm a little bit nervous. I went back and did a lot of um, reading of my own journals to put my story together. So, but I'm happy to be here. I'm really honored to be here. I've been listening to the podcast since my day one, and it's really been a big part of my journey. When was your day one? My last drink was on November 13th, 2018. So, November 14th of 2018. And can you let listeners? know a little bit more about yourself? Can you let us know where you're from? What do you do for a living? What do you like to do for fun? And yeah, do you have a family? How do you spend your time? Tell us a little bit about yourself, Britt. Sure. I'm 45 years old. I'm single and I have no kids. I have a cat. So shout out to all the cat ladies out there. A sober woman's cat is like her tour manager. That cat has seen everything and he ain't telling nobody nothing. I grew up in the wild and rich and lovely landscape of Los Angeles, California. I live in Long Beach and I work for a large city here. And what do I like to do for fun? I love to hike. I love to do anything outdoors. Um, I love to find new music. 
And Britt, tell me a little bit about your history with drinking. When did you start your relationship with alcohol? How did that evolve? And what got you to this journey of quitting drinking and being here with us? Sure. So yeah, I did really didn't have a, what I would say, a big problem with drinking until maybe my mid thirties. Um, like a lot of folks that have that slow burn into active addiction, but to put it into context, um, I struggled a lot with depression and agoraphobia in my late teens and early twenties and, um, had periods of time where I literally would leave the house once a week for one hour to go to therapy. And so I gradually worked through that and around the age of 30, I made some life changes and I lost about a hundred pounds. So really my first, what I like to call my dragons was an addiction, not to food, but to the sensations that eating and overeating brought that the sensations that binging brought. And so as I entered my thirties, it's really hard to describe what it's like to go through a life change and lose so much weight that people don't recognize you. And I probably should have gotten some counseling at that time. It left a lot of gaps and um, makes a lot of sense in retrospect why drinking came in and filled those gaps for me. So that's just to put into context where my addictive tendencies come from. So not until about 2012, um, some things were going on and I, a friend of mine had passed, a close friend had passed away and I decided to quit drinking and I quit drinking for um, over a little over a year. But at that time, I had no memory of any kind of plan to stay sober. I had no community in place and I really white knuckled it for a little over a year. And I couldn't tell you when or why, but I just began drinking again. And so gradually that worsened as I started drinking again. And so I did what most people do. And I tried the, a geographical cure. So in 2014, I moved, I packed everything up and I moved up North and gave it a go. And between 2014 and about 2016, I would say my drinking really uh, ramped up. And what was interesting was I went back to my journal entries and I recalled having a lot of periods of trying to moderate my drinking, but I didn't have a lot of recollection of trying to quit. But when I recently went back to my journals, and I definitely recommend journaling in your recovery as a tool to look back on and see what you're going through and what might be triggering you. When I went back and looked at my journals, I realized that I was actually making a lot of attempts to stop drinking that I didn't remember. And if you can picture like a little girl's diary, when we were little, we had these diaries that had these little, little tiny locks on them that we believe nobody could pick through. And so all of my attempts at moderation and quitting were kept in these little diaries. I never spoke to anybody about wanting to quit drinking. I never vocalized accountability at that time. And so if I go back and I read through these journals, I just see entry upon entry of me wanting to quit and then gaps in the journals. And then I would just be drinking again. I never 
even would be accountable to myself in the journals. So just continued on with drinking. And so I decided to move back home in 2016, which I call the geographical cure part two. I packed everything up and I decided to move back home to Southern California. And I had recently reached out to a therapist and it was only our second session. And that was when I was still up North and I was deliberating whether to come home. And on the second session, I finally said out loud to her, Hey, I think I have a problem with drinking. And I never had a third session with her. I quit my job and I moved home. And my big idea was that I would not drink in my mother's home. Uh, My mom, I've never seen my mom take a drink. I've never seen anyone in the generation above myself and my siblings take a drink. Actually, Um, we grew up in a teetotaler household. And my commitment was that it would be, you know, horrible to drink in my mother's home and I was moving home. And so I figured that would give me the accountability that I needed. So I packed up my U-Haul in Sacramento and I drove everything I owned including my beloved cat, Mr. Richard Laszlo Parker. And we drove back. And on the way back home, I pulled over many, many times to buy drinks. And I drove. um, And when I arrived on what would have been my day one of not drinking at my mother's house, I was drunk and driving a U-Haul with my cat. And I believed at that moment I had hit a rock bottom. So I ended up back in Southern California And I was drinking at that point um, nearly every day. And I had thought that I had reached the apex of my drinking career. And I decided to get a job at a liquor store. Right. I'm going to interrupt you right here because you've touched on some things that I want to follow up on. And and thanks, Britt. And thanks for being so open and vulnerable. I love what you shared about journaling. And I'm just curious because we both share our first dragon, which is some, I think I had more of a labeled eating disorder and you, uh, I'm not so sure if that's what you had, but you said that the sensations brought on by the act of binge eating, that's what you were looking for and pursuing when you used to turn to food. I wonder if that when you had those life changes and lost a hundred pounds and then connected a little bit more with alcohol, were you noticed that that final sensation was similar? Did it seem to be some sort of a transfer thing for you? Yeah, I definitely believe that addiction serves a very specific purpose in our lives. And for me, whatever this, the, the pattern that I was in, whether it was binge eating and losing weight or trying to lose weight or or drinking and trying to stop whatever that mechanism was, it was always an attempt to have a sense that I had control over something in my life. And I don't know where that comes from. I mean, that's something I'm, I'm still learning about myself is why I, why, why I would be so uncomfortable with inevitable change, why I would be um, so fearful of instability or things just progressing in life and why I would need to hold on so tightly. But the cycle of addiction has that function. It makes your day-to-day life a tiny 
spiral of desire and craving and satisfaction. And then the shame and loathing of feeling like you're um, giving into that desire and craving. So um, I definitely think the two were related in exactly the same way. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that insight, you know, because I know it happens to to a lot of us. And I think it's important that we talk about it. You even mentioned, I hope I say this right, it's a big word for me. You even mentioned agoraphobia, which if I'm not mistaken, it's this fear of leaving, was it leaving your, wherever you lived or being in public spaces? Am I on the right track for what that means? Yeah, exactly. I had a lot of anxiety about leaving the house Um, I had a lot of anxiety about being seen by people. I don't know if that makes sense. And ironically, losing a lot of weight exacerbated that. I felt like I made myself the center of attention when I lost a lot of weight and I was still never comfortable with that. I still could not deal with that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because for me that I've done a lot of research after my eating disorder recovery, it's crazy, you know, how a lot of people who have emotional issues tied up with their weight. You know, our weight is like an added safety blanket in a way. And when that's removed and we're exposed, it's hard. And I, I I don't think I knew that before all of my food issues and after being on this journey, but it's just, it's interesting to hear that perspective of how even in the craziest ways, our body is always trying to protect us from our mind demons. It's, it's, it's wild to me. And I, for me, listeners, I mean, I do have the privilege and the honor of knowing Brit and of calling Brit a friend and just, I didn't know this about her. I didn't know Brit that you struggled with agoraphobia and I met you sober and I've gotten to know you sober. And to me, there are a few people that like, if I had to describe you, you're just someone who is so open to nature, to being outside, to life, to experiences, to saying yes. And I don't know, it just seems like you've gone such a long way. Granted, I didn't know you before, but your life has changed a ton. I know we haven't even gotten to the end of your story, but I I just want to continue to always give hope to listeners that no matter how in it you think you are, here's a perfect testimony that you can build a very different life with very different outcomes for yourself. But what happened after you got home drunk in a U-Haul with your loving cat who is judge free and will love you no matter what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he sure is. Or if he's judging me, we don't speak the same language. So (laughs) I, you will never never know. know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I was home again and uh, my drinking had actually increased despite my promises to myself and to my mom. And I um, sought out as a, while I was seeking out full-time work, I had of course a regular liquor store that I used to go to. And I walked in one day and asked for a job and I started working there. You know, eventually I found full-time work. So I was working full-time and I was drinking on a regular basis. And, you know, people ask about your rock bottom and, you know, fortunately nothing catastrophic had happened to me on one night coming home from the liquor store. I used to ride my bike um, to and from the store and the chain broke on the bike 
and I was actually drunk and I was in a hurry to get home so I could drink before I could, would um, be able to go to bed and get up the next day for my full-time job. And I fell onto the road into the traffic and just kind of opened my eyes. I had a beer in my backpack that I had stolen from work that I was ready to drink and it rolled out into the middle of the street. And I kind of laid there for a second and quickly got up and gathered my things. I had actually really smashed my knee pretty badly. And I went to the doctor and they had a really great uh, nurse at urgent care that, that hounded me to go get um, an ultrasound to check my knee after she determined it wasn't broken. And the reason was she thought it was possible I had a blood clot. And in fact, I did. And after she called me twice to tell me to go in and get it checked, I did. And they diagnosed me with a DVT and they put me on, I don't know if anybody's ever had a blood clot, but the treatment is blood thinners. So they put me on blood thinners and they told me not to drink because drinking thins your blood and so do blood thinners. And it can have a catastrophic Uh, impact on your internal organs, or if you hurt yourself again, you can bleed to death. And I lasted about 72 hours without drinking and continued to drink for, um, I was on blood thinners for almost a year for treatment. And I, I continued to drink more than I'd ever drank in my life. And I think that I, I had a lot of fear over that. I think I really started to become very scared of the fact that I think, I guess they call it cognitive dissonance when you are constantly consciously telling yourself that you don't want to drink anymore. And then you find yourself drinking over and over again. And I've learned to look at cognitive dissonance. I hear it in a lot of people talking in recovery about that feeling. It feels awful, but it's such a, it's like a swan song to recovery. It's your psyche beginning to open those doors into recovery. So that was leading towards uh, a real desire for me to want to quit drinking. Yeah. It's that crazy shame spiral that you feel stuck in, but at the same time, this growing awareness. So I love that you, you shared that. It's almost like, how do you guys say in English? It's like a curse and a blessing at the same time, because I do think it's the beginning of change and, and not a, a fun chapter, but it's definitely something is coming online that needs to come online in order to kind of cross that bridge over. You thought you had hit your bottom or you hit one of your bottoms when you got home, then you kept drinking, you had the knee accident, blood thinners. What was needed for you to stop drinking? What happened next? It was a lot of, I don't know. I guess I was in a, in a big negotiation period with myself for those two years. I never gave up during that whole time. You know, I, I continued to put some effort into moderating or quitting. I had a chalkboard in my kitchen and it had the number 44 on it. And that was my target for the week of drinks. And I, I I always went over, but I kept, I gave it another try. I, I, I was listening to the podcasts at that time on a pretty regular basis. And it's weird because you kind of, when you bring, when you bring the podcast on the recovery elevator podcast and you start listening to the stories of everyone, it's almost like you've joined a community. You're in there with your headphones on and you're listening to each person share. And the story is the facts change, but everybody's story is the same. And you start to relate to people and it's like joining a community. And 
I think that had some effect on me to keep trying. And someone, I believe it was on the podcast, had mentioned a book called The 30 Day Sobriety Solution. And I picked it up and I didn't begin the next day. I actually had that book for a little over a month. And um, I tried, I eventually gave it a go and did the 30 days. It's simple exercises you do each day and you commit to the 30 days of um, no drinking. And I had no plan to stay sober after 30 days, um, but I made it through the 30 days and it stuck and I kept going from there. I'm so excited that you started listening to the show and that you said out loud, I kept trying, you know, because even during that cognitive dissonance where all we feel sometimes is that we're continuing to fail and continuing to let ourselves down, it all counts, you know, and, and it, I think that's hard to reconcile when you're living through it, but you're just trying to build reps in the right direction. You know, you're trying to rewire so much and that's exhausting. So I'm just glad that, that you, that you kept going. And I wonder too, with the moderation thing, this just, it came to my mind earlier too, that because those of us that struggle with food, it's so easy to just fall into this trap of like calorie counting. So I wonder, you said quitting was not something I ever thought of. I just kept thinking about moderating. I wonder if it's like, oh, I have all these food rules that allow me and have allowed me to lose weight. I can just have all these booze rules, like the equivalent, the equivalent of counting calories is like counting drinks and trying to stay on quote unquote track, you know, until we realize like food, we can't give up. We need to eat to survive, but alcohol, we can't actually give it up. We don't need it to survive like food. Exactly. It's, um, it's a different question when we have to ask about what our relationship will be with food as opposed to drinking. Whereas we don't think the question, the answer with drinking is you don't need it. So yeah, I, I think about how I had convinced myself that it would be this tremendous effort to live a life without alcohol. And yet I spent hours creating spreadsheets and whiteboards and chalkboards to moderate my drinking. And that was the real time clock. That was, that was more punching in and punching out than just a simple decision to not pick up a drink again. I didn't see that at that time. After finishing the 30 day experiment, what allowed you to continue with the momentum and continue to stack days? Um, I had, I, at the end of the 30, as the 30 days approached, um, and I really liked the book because it, it just appealed to my practical side and my, you know, my let's, let's do the tasks. Let's get this job done. That kind of, that's that aspect of my personality. But as the 30 days approached, I knew that I was feeling better and I knew that I didn't, I didn't, you know, how we write those letters to alcohol as if it were our ex. I remember writing down, like, even if I see you again in um, six months, it's too soon. And that was what I had decided. Like, I didn't want to have more contact with my, my ex alcohol. And I decided to just before like overthinking it, I made the decision that I would just do the book again from day one. And so I started the book over from day one at, at that point. And somewhere along in those second 30 days, I signed up for the, the Cafe RE group, the online community. 
and they were offering a retreat in Jan, I think it was late January. And I signed up and bought it. Like I didn't think about it. I just bought it because I knew if I had put the money down, I wasn't going to drink before that trip. And that kind of bought me another um, like 60 days, I think from that point. And I went on the retreat. It was in Nashville. And then it was real because you show up and you meet all these people and they see who you are and you tell them you're an alcoholic. (laughs) And that really started to shape the journey for me. It brought something that had never been before. Like I was talking about those little girl diaries where nobody knew I was trying. Now everybody knew I was trying. And it was really the one thing that was different between all the attempts before. And this time was the accountability aspect of it and vocalizing the problem. Yeah. I know that's where I met you for the first time. And I know that events and meeting other people on the same path are a huge game changer for many of us. And I'm curious to know, back home, were you sharing about your journey with anybody or was it just you and listening to the podcast, joining Cafe Ari? How was your real life outside of the recovery bubble that I feel like we create for ourselves in early sobriety? Yeah, I I baby stepped in for sure. I took my time. I don't think I told my immediate family and until I was sober for many months. But interestingly enough, my, my best friend of 40 years, she's been sober for like 20, 25 years. She's been sober, you know, since we've been in college. And I didn't, I didn't even say to her right away that I have had joined this community. Eventually I did. I really, I really value personal integrity and I don't want to oversimplify the task at hand when I talk about recovery, but I really just don't, I didn't want to be a person anymore that kept saying they were going to do something and then didn't do it. So when I told people, I knew that I had already decided at that point that I was going to at least make one hell of an effort to stick to what I said. So when I, I might've, I, I took my time to tell people, but when I said it, I knew I'd gotten to a point where I was serious about it. You know, I appreciate your response, especially coming from someone who is the opposite. And that I feel like sometimes I'm so impulsive. I mean, I made a huge post on Facebook and then drank again and like, didn't even know where to hide because I knew that people knew that I had said that I was not drinking. And I just feel like with time on this journey, with time in therapy and getting to know myself, I've like realized that, you know, it's, it's good to take your time and to not overshare and to trust yourself enough and give things time. And and that's been a lesson for me. So I'm glad that you like were, I feel like you've gotten to know yourself so well, and you were so aware of your actions throughout the process, even in the early stages, which I think are super hard. I mean, working at a liquor store while you're attempting sobriety. Was that crazy triggering on a day-to-day basis? I get asked that a lot. I know it seems miraculous, but I somehow it worked. I learned a lot of lessons working there. And yeah, sometimes it was, it felt odd, but at the same time, I felt like if I can make it through this test of sobriety, then I'm off to a pretty good start. 
A hundred percent. And back in those days, and even now, you know, what did you start doing if you did get hit with a craving? What new response to that need for relief of those sensations that you were so used to getting as a, like a reward system? How did you start swapping those out for something that wasn't drinking? Yeah, it's, you know, I've been asking that question uh, more and more lately. Like, what can I do to soothe myself that's not destructive? I've run the gamut. You know, I've, I've gotten into relationships to soothe myself. I've gotten, I've eaten to soothe myself. You know, I've exercised probably beyond healthy limits to soothe myself. And lately my, my trick, and I was doing this from the beginning, but I realized that this, this is something that is a positive soother that I like to use again and again. And that is if I have the opportunity and I'm feeling particularly triggered or I don't have cravings per se, but I have things that happen that really start to, you know, when you feel like a little shaken from your nest and I like to go find a new place and take a walk, like go to a new park. The novelty of being in a new place is very distracting and very soothing. Like you have a sense of accomplishment when you've gone and scoped out something in your neighborhood that you've never seen before or a new hike or some trail you've never been on. Um, that always seems to help for me. And it's a little bit of exercise too. Yes. Uh, listeners, Britt is the hiking queen of Cafe Ari. I am so grateful that she joined our community. I don't even know who joined first. I feel like we both kind of joined at the same time. I'm going to have to check our dates, but recently in the last few months, um, since Britt and I are both in SoCal, we do these meetups where we go hiking once a month at the, the end of each month. And it's been such a good way to build in accountability and to also deepen these friendships that we've now discovered through community. I mean, Britt, you also do the meditations for us in Cafe Ari. I know you will be leading those during Bozeman in a couple of weeks. How has this service component helped you? during this journey. I don't even know if you perceive it as service, but I just see you as someone who's adding so much to us. Do you think about it like that as service? Does that help you stay accountable? I did make a, a conscious effort in my second year of recovery to give back and to be more service-minded. You know, in your first year of recovery, well, for me, it was, I was very self-centric and uh, focused on healing myself and the I look, I actually looked forward to making efforts to reach out. I've seen so many role models and in recovery, sh show me how it's done. And I, and I always, I would always kind of be fascinated by people that were constantly looking out for each other in that way. So, yeah, I, I kind of had no clue how I would fit into all that. So I just did what I liked and I love in-person meetups. They um, they add an element for me that is very important. Um, and I, I like to lock that in by doing that as locally as I can, obviously in my own neighborhoods. So, um, yeah, we just started doing the, I think I reached out to you and you were game. So we started the little hiking group and then the meditation meditation is just something that I found actually before I got sober and have continued through and I, it made me accountable to learn meditation a little bit more deeply by leading meditation. So I started to do that. I never, 
grasp the depth of meditation until I got sober. And I, I think a lot of people probably relate to this feeling that when you're, when you're doing these things before you get sober, you're making all these efforts like exercise and meditation and all these things to help you. And you get to this point where you're feel like you're treading water and you're not making any gains. And so uh, drinking was a block to the gains of meditation. And then when I continued meditating in sobriety, I realized like what meditation can do and how much that it's helped me. So I've, I've kind of continued that and been um, interested in sharing that process with other people. Yeah. You know, that's the other thing that, that comes to my mind when I think about you is that you are so open and willing to share. And I feel like many times we think, what can I do to contribute? Uh, what can I bring to the table? And I do think that one of those things that, that we don't think about as service, but it's huge service is just simply sharing. I feel like in our community in Cafe RE, there's a lot of people who share a lot. There's people who are a little bit more nervous about sharing. And obviously everyone is on their own journey, but I feel like in sharing is healing and you are beautiful with words, beautiful with sharing. Um, listeners, Britt even wrote this post that talks a little bit more about her experience at the liquor store. And I asked her if she could bring it to the interview today so she could read it to us. So I'm going to ask you, Britt, to read it. But I just think it's such a wonderful way of healing and writing. And you shared how journaling has been with you since before you started your sober journey. So I'm just really happy that you have that tool. It's something that I could get better at doing. And I know many people are curious about writing and journaling, but I feel like it's such an amazing way to process, to share, to heal. And I'm excited that you said yes to sharing this this piece that you wrote and you shared in Cafe Ari, I think we should go find a publisher because it's beautiful. So can you share it with us? Yes, sure. Thank you. You know, I never really thought about writing as um, something in that way, but yet, of course, we have our favorite authors and there's so many great Quitlet authors that have um, left me with words that have changed my life. So yeah. Wow. Thank you so much. And I'd be happy to read it. Should I begin? Yes, go for it. Okay. At what I thought was the apex of my drinking career, I walked into my own liquor store and got a part-time job. Brother, was I wrong about the apex. I worked there for four years, shilling the drink, closing the store many times, and not remembering that I did, taking whatever I wanted, getting drunk with customers, and pretending to be sober with others. I saw customers come and go and die, Come and go and only come back for a ritualized soda to replace beer. Come and go and come and go and come and go through the revolving sales door of sobriety and drinking. I also got sober while working there. Halfway through my liquor store clerk career, I quit drinking. Somehow my inner environment was able to change as the same dusty alcohol bottles surrounded me. In those evenings, I read quitlet book after quitlet book on my shifts. Hours and hours of sober homework, while one hand ka-ching the register, I started talking to some of those soda drinker customers and went to AA meetings with them. It seemed that every single customer that came in was a mirror of some stage of my drinking or where it could go. I let it teach me compassion as I stuffed candy and chips quite uncompassionately into my face by the fistfuls in the beginning months of sobriety. I thought my principles should interfere and that I should quit the job. 
but then my principles hit a pandemic and I needed the part-time work more than ever. Plus, it was the simply the easiest job I've had, people. Instead, I just talked up the kombuchas and the topo chicos when people asked me what I like to drink. And I tried not to roll my eyes when the nuances of Malbec came up. Last month, the liquor store closed over a lease dispute and the universe quit the job for me. It's bittersweet. The store has been there for over 65 years, not just a longstanding staple in my neighborhood, but where as a kid, I brought snacks for the beach, wine for the evenings as a young adult, where I worked at, where I crashed down in, and where I sobered up at. But sentimentalism aside, addiction isn't in a place and neither is recovery. There's freedom in that. We're going to have to make <laughs> that last sentence a quote. You know, I love your words and the last piece of your share just expresses this message that I've seen in other quotes of, you know, like nothing changes if nothing changes, or um, if you change yourself, your life will change. We're waiting sometimes for things on the outside to change so that things on the inside can change. But that's what I feel when I hear you read those last couple of sentences is, you know, kind of up to us and entirely up to us. And that is empowering and terrifying at the same time. Exactly. Everybody comes to their place at their own due time, but yeah, I didn't want to wait anymore. I'm so happy that you're here. I know we're running shorter on time, but you went, did you do the Asia trip as well? You did, didn't you? Yes, I did. I I did. How fun was that? It was awesome. It was one of those things I was always on my bucket list and I never imagined doing it with a bunch of crazy sober people, (laughs) but you know, it was definitely one of my most memorable moments in sobriety where I got together with one of the girls that was on the trip and we got out before sunrise to Angkor Wat in Cambodia. Uh, It's one of the seven wonders of the world. And we watched the sunrise over the temple. And I just thought, oh my gosh, that's just too, I'm just overwhelmed with the symbolism of all these people here respecting this temple. And I finally found a way to respect my own. I love that. Thank you, Britt. And we've reached the rapid fire round. So if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. What is your go-to response when you're out on a date or when you're hanging with some friends and someone offers you a drink? I like to say what I want to drink. (laughs) I guess I would say, um, I just say what I want to drink, which is usually like a Diet Coke or an iced tea or something. I don't, I don't necessarily say that I don't drink, although I don't have a problem with it. I guess it depends on the environment. What would you say to younger Brit? Ooh, I think just to embrace the bads along with the goods, you know, let go of, you know, perfectionism is a killer. And like we mentioned before, you know, sometimes these these feelings of dissonance or, or fear or struggle are there for a reason and to just turn and face them. Don't run away. Yes. The only way out is through what has recovery made possible for you. I have come to a place where I've 
I've really, addiction has been very humbling in a, a very positive way. I know that a lot of, especially women come, you know, in their recovery journey, come to a place where they, um, they can, you know, kind of be in this position where they're like, I'm doing me now. But for me, it was kind of the reverse where I've softened in my relationships with people. And I had always wanted a little more that I have always been sort of a, a rigid and judgmental person in my life. And it's been hard for me to connect obviously with people with that kind of attitude. And for me, recovery has humbled me and opened me up to deeper connections with people. Oh, I love that. What are some of your favorite resources on this journey? Uh, Meditation, of course. I'm a big fan of Jeff Warren. He was the one that um, helped spur the 10% happier uh, movement with uh, Dan Harris, I believe. Uh, I love Elizabeth Gilbert, the writer. She wrote Eat, Eat, Pray, Love, but her writings on addiction. And she talks a lot about agency in recovery, which I love. Like I said, uh, that, that concept of personal integrity is very strong for me. I love to do crosswords just to, to soothe my mind. Um, Odette, you gave me a really beautiful crossword book that's on my coffee table. And um, I love funny women, especially if they're in recovery. So there's a podcast by Nikki Glazer, and she, she doesn't always talk about recovery. In fact, she rarely talks about recovery, but she's just so funny. And I just appreciate women that say whatever is on their mind and talk about life in that way and have that attitude about life, like keeping our sense of humor about what we can't and just rolling with the punches. I'm going to have to listen to that podcast. She's amazing. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? Gosh, you know, it's funny because when, you know, times have gradually, we've seen a shift um, in the in the movement with alcohol and this exposing of addiction and we're promoting mental health and we're, we're, we're starting to talk about stuff that we never talked about before. And I just want people that are kind of trying to make that decision to quit that, you know, when we were teenagers, it was almost a rite of passage to be rebellious. And once I realized that, that we were almost at the beginning of this movement where we can be like these rebels, it definitely motivated me to, to get to be the one that can open that awkward part of the conversation at a party that, um, no, I don't drink and I'm not interested in drinking anymore. And I'm really interested in building this life. That's not just about not drinking, but about being released from addiction and moving forward. Yes. I love that we have this new framework. I I don't think there's a better time to get sober than now. You know, we're so supported and like you, like I feel empowered and like the oddball in the best of ways, instead of the worst of ways, like typically for me growing up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like this is our opportunity to be punk rock. And before we depart, let's give listeners your own. You may have to say adios to booze if line. You may have to say adios to booze if you set your alarm clock for 12 a.m. because you said you wouldn't drink today. <laughs> Smart cookie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Rit, thank you so much. I can't wait to see you in a couple of weeks at our Bozeman retreat. Thank you so much for joining us. 
I appreciate you. Love you. And just thanks. Thanks. Odette, thank you so much for having me on. It's absolutely an honor. I, I love to, to tell people that um, when you join a recovery community, you'll be surprised at who you rub shoulders with and the way you've motivated me along to be more dynamic in so many ways has been amazing. And I'm ever grateful for that. I'm grateful for you. Talk to you soon, friend. Sounds good. Bye. Bye. Very well, Team RE. That wraps our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to once again say thank you to Brit. You know, being behind the microphone on this podcast, it often means that people think we have it all together or that I have it all together. And the truth is that I have a life outside of Recovery Elevator, a life that is messy, a life that is full of ups and downs, full of good days, and also full of bad ones too. (laughs) It's a full life that I'm present for, and I wouldn't change it for the world. Britt and I get to connect as friends monthly during our SoCal monthly hikes with our Cafe Ari community, which is part of my recovery process and my recovery support system. The accountability that these hikes build for me is important, and it matters to me. My point here is keep showing up, team. Even if you're on day one, or if you're on day 1000, you never know who you are helping by being here. Thanks, Britt, for being a part of my own support system. I appreciate you so much. I also appreciate all of you listeners and people who follow us on our Instagram that reach out to us, that send us DMs, that send us emails. It helps us more than you know. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, this isn't a no to alcohol, but a yes to a better life. I love you guys. Get out of the story. Get out of the story and use the mind to locate the body. Move the energy inside by talking, walking, and most importantly, trusting that the body already knows how to do so. We cannot fight a drinking problem or an addiction because it's trying to tell us something and we must listen. It's nudging us in a certain direction. Listen to the heart and follow your gut intuition. This will never mislead you. thinking.